Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Daniel Paris, a host of the New Books Network, and I'm delighted to have as my guest today Vadim Schneider, an assistant professor of Russian at uh, UCLA, to discuss his uh, newly published book, Russia's Capitalist Realism, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and Chekhov. The book just came out uh, from Northwestern University Press. Uh, Vadim, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much, Daniel. I'm delighted to be here. So your, your book is really at the intersection of two interests, which I think a lot of our listeners will appreciate. One understands and is familiar, even if one's not a Russian specialist, uh, of the classics of uh, Russian literature, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Chekhov, and, and their works. And then one thinks about the role of, say, economics and industrialization in the work of, say, Dickens or other writers of the 19th century. But one doesn't think too much about that intersection and the tensions in society that were being created by rapid economic development when one thinks of the Russian greats. And yet you you do, and you illuminate that, frankly, those tensions are really quite widely present in this great literature. How did you come upon this, this topic and why hasn't it been more broadly addressed earlier? That's, I think that's a great place to start. And I think that this question could immediately take us in a number of different directions. Uh, To start with, how did I happen upon this? I think that I happened upon it in really a quite organic way, I would say. Uh, I was reading a lot of 19th century Russian literature in the course of my graduate courses. Uh, I was not intending at the time to even study 19th century Russian literature, but as, as one does, I was uh, going through my coursework and just kind of re-encountering these works, uh, in many cases, things that I hadn't read for a long time uh, myself. And for one reason or another, I think that there are some contextual kind of background uh, factors here um, among those that uh, the 2008 financial crisis had just taken place. and. Uh, questions about the uh, economic conditions in which I was living, in which uh, everyone around me was uh, was living, were on my mind. Uh, and at the same time, I was reading all of this 19th century Russian literature. And I think that that attitude predisposed me to pay attention to things that come up again and again in these works, but things that are often not particularly extensively commented upon. Uh, one thing that I noticed immediately was that money is everywhere in these books. And it's not there as some kind of intangible, symbolic, or uh, sort of eternal feature. These concerns with money are always uh, kind of intensely localized to the particular things happening at a particular time in a particular place to particular members of society. And so I began to realize that there was a great deal that one could learn by thinking about 
what these authors were up to when talking about these things. And when I had started with money, uh, that took me in a multitude of other directions. Because once I started to pay attention to the kind of economic background uh, or the kind of economic thinking uh, implied in these books, it led me to pay attention to things like what do economically active characters do? What are they like? What kind of narrative functions, what kind of plot functions do they serve? Then I started to think about who works in Russian novels, who doesn't. This is kind of a famous discussion, uh, but I started to pay attention to these minor characters who labor for a living, who make money for a living. For other readers who are familiar with the canon of 19th century Russian literature, I think a lot of listeners will be, you will see Anna Karenina and, and Dostoevsky's The Idiot and the Brothers Karamazov in a way that you have not before by reading this book. It is, is as you say, it's all there. You just generally, when one initially or uh, whenever one reads the Russian classics, you're not really looking for the economic tangents, but when you as you make the point, they're there and they actually are pretty significant plot drivers. There's a lot of the underlying rise and fall of, of individuals' lives and motivations. Turns out to be more money and business driven than we might assume when thinking about the classics. So I, I think it's, it's eye-opening in many ways. I'm glad you think so. And again, I, I like to think that I've simply looked at some of these very frequently read, endlessly commented upon books from a slightly different angle. And because these texts are so capacious, it turns out that, as you say, that there are these innumerable points of contact with economic concerns that have simply often gone unremarked or kind of minimally commented upon. So let's let's start with that, and you kind of systematically go through them. One of the things is the nature of labor, the way people work, uh, it's often none of these writers of the you know kind of the great Russian writers, uh, whether it's the Big Four or a, a number of minor Russian writers in the 19th century that you mentioned, none of them are are particularly up to speed on uh, forms of labor uh, in a detailed sense, and they have these vague sense people make money in one way or another, but it's not really very clear. But there are descriptions, realist descriptions of early uh, merchants and early factory labor in the books, which you think kind of stand out as Russia's first blush or brush with, with modern capitalism. And uh, there's this tension in those descriptions as to what these authors know and don't know. It turns out these great Russian authors don't know a, a great deal about how a factory works. They don't have to. Right. But it, you know, when you compare it with Dickens, uh, they're pretty far behind Dickens. Uh, you don't address this issue, but it, it occurred to me that they're not, they're not really in the, factor, the uh, factory with, with Dickens. No, they really aren't. And I think that, that itself is quite noteworthy. Uh, they're, they're certainly not investigating the details of a production process or the way that a business works, the way that, say, Emile Zola did mm -hmm. extensively in French literature. Yes. And so that has a direct consequence in the way that they represent, say, factories, to take one very prominent example. Uh, they're not interested in the details. What they almost always, almost without exception, what the Russian writers seem to be interested in is the phenomenon of an uninitiated visitor showing, uh, kind of showing up at one of these factories, gazing inside the windows, or maybe even walking inside, and experiencing this overwhelming sense of 
bewilderment and terror. A factory is not there in a Russian novel, generally speaking, to explain how factories work. They're there to provide us an opportunity to register just how shocking the fact of a factory is. And this happens over and over again in different writers, writers with different ideological or political programs. It seems a very consistent, almost conventional way of looking at what a factory uh, is like. Uh, a person who's not familiar with it is just mesmerized by the noise, the constant activity, the seemingly incomprehensible complexity of all of this. And what it suggests more than anything else is that something epic-making and utterly new has arrived, and how do we make sense of it? And, and I have to say, in most of the literature, it, it's malevolent. It's, uh, it's either neutral, uh, neutral at best and, and more often than not uh, perceived to be a malevolent force. And I'm, I'm struggling, and I'm going to get out of my, my bandwidth pretty quickly if I recall the education of Henry Adams in the United States, where he visits, I think, the, uh, uh, the Philadelphia Fair or Centennial, and he is delighted by the machinery. He is thrilled by the machinery and describing it and the cultural significance of the machinery. And if you contrast that with any of the Russian writers, you simply would not see that. In, it, it, it is much more a, uh, a malevolent force throughout, uh, you know, as this old society, older society, is struggling to assimilate or understand the rapid changes that are occurring, uh, occurring in it. I, I agree. I have combed the 19th century literature pretty extensively. I won't claim that I have read absolutely every factory description, but it is hard to find one, I should say, in the fiction. It is hard to find one in the fiction that does not characterize the factory as at least a somewhat threatening force. Uh, there are certainly other kinds of writing in which Russians are uh, Russian observers, Russian visitors to factories are fascinated by the machinery. But as far as the literature is concerned, it is almost always uh, a deeply frightening, disturbing place and a place that is impossible for the visitor to comprehend, to make any coherent, calm sense of. And I guess you, you could say that Anna Karenin is a pretty good example of uh, not so much the factory, but the divergence of these two cultures, Russian and rural, on one hand, the pastoral, and then Anna Karenin, you cast Anna's story as somewhat, you know, uh, uh, unsuccessful engagement of modernity, and Levin on the other side really trying to hold back as, as much as possible uh, the, the old old way. So let's, let's dive right into Anna Karenin from an economic perspective and, and how you see that, that great novel. Absolutely. Uh, so as readers of Tolstoy's great novel are likely to remember or perhaps are likely to uh, kind of begrudgingly acknowledge, much of that novel is concerned with things that seem remarkably far afield from uh, Anna's love story from her uh, experiences uh, with her family or with Vronsky or for that matter even uh, with Levin's story of his uh, involvement with Kitty with the family they eventually have uh, there are many pages devoted to farming there are many pages devoted to Levin's unsuccessful attempt to write a theoretical treatise on Russian agriculture and then there are those famous uh, passages, 
sometimes parodied by other uh, 19th century Russian writers, in which Levin himself decides to mow a field together with his hired workers. And the novel devotes loving attention to what it is like for this nobleman to take up the scythe and mow a field. And as I was reading this, again, in, in the course of the early stages of this project, one of the things that fascinated me is that you will not find anywhere in 19th century Russian literature an even remotely comparable description of, say, industrial labor. No one experiences this kind of joy of operating a machine in a factory. No narrator lavishes this kind of attention on the bodily sensations of any other kind of work. And it struck me that there is something really interesting going on in Tolstoy's description of agricultural labor. And that kind of was the starting point of my thinking about this novel from an economic point of view. Why is there so much attention to this scene? Why is it described in a way that's so different from the scant references to labor, uh, to kind of physical labor that we find in other works of Russian literature, including Tolstoy's own works? And then you are using the the other part, Anna's story, where again, there are moments of kind of brutal, uh, not, I don't know if brutal, but striking modernity. The railroad is a metaphor for the disruption to Russian society of economic development. And, uh, uh, you know, maybe you read a little bit too much into that, but it, it's an awfully thought-provoking concept about uh, that, that Tolstoy seems to be taking that, uh, that these interventions, modern interventions aren't, aren't particularly desirable from his perspective or threatening, certainly threatening in one form or another. Yeah, and I, I certainly accept that my uh, argument about the on the portions of the novel are likely to be controversial, and that's, that's fine. I hope that this generates discussion. I hope that this encourages people to return to the novel and think about it in various ways. But in my view, uh, Anna's experiences uh, are to such an extent related to, kind of motivated by her connection to urban society, which is itself undergoing this transformation, commercialization, uh, the way that the train seems to cut paths throughout uh, her story. She travels so frequently on it. Some of her most intense experiences take place on the train. And it seems to me that in so many ways, uh, not just in terms of their temperaments, in terms of their relationships to other people, but when Anna and Levin are contrasted in this novel, one of the ways in which that contrast is established is in terms of their relationship to this incipient industrial modernity, where Anna is much more thoroughly implicated in it than Levin is. I think I think your case is probably clearer, though I think many people would automatically agree, but case is clearer and kind of easier to see, maybe less controversial in, in uh, Oblomov with uh, the, the juxtaposition of Stoltz and, and Oblomov. But for those who, who may be only familiar with the big four, uh, you know, give us a you know, contrast. Those two characters, one archetypal Russian character, not much about not much for modern economic activity, and then the uh, foreign representative of economic activity who is all about modernity and efficiency. Uh, I uh, I am very fond of that uh, of that novel, and I see the economic intervention in it, the contrast in it. Ablomov is 
I think, one of the clearest uh, illustrations of this distinction. And I don't talk about Oblomov so much, in part because other scholars have already done an excellent job of discussing that novel in these terms. What I found in the course of my reading of the big Russian novelists, the ones that are kind of read all over the world, is that there are plenty of these representatives of economic modernity, but they tend to be peripheral characters. In and this I case, think, German, you know, made clear that it's a peripheral non-Russian character by virtue of being a German stuck in Russia. Exactly. In the, in the case of Oblomov, this is a half-German character. The narrator makes it very clear that it's his Germanness that has uh, a lot to do with his business sense, with his attitude towards productivity and efficiency and punctuality and things of this nature, that the Russian side of him has this kind of poetic character that really doesn't do much uh, in the novel itself. It just hangs there as a potential. But Stoltz uh, is this constantly active businessman traveling here and there, uh, always in motion, always at work. And his counterpart, uh, the Russian nobleman Ilya Oblomov, mostly lies around uh, on his couch at home dreaming. Uh, and he has this extraordinarily rich inner life, but he doesn't do much of anything. And we find this uh, a similar kind of pattern repeated in many of the other novels as well. So if, if that juxtaposition, which is you're putting into uh, uh, unfairly to Levin and Anna Karenina, that is because Levin is quite active, uh, but it's very, very clear in, and again, it's worth pointing out the author, Ivan Gachorov for uh, Oblomov, where it's less clear and really interesting and very messy is in uh, the works of Dostoevsky. And you highlight uh, in one of his great novels, The Idiot, uh, the, the role of merchants and money coming and going and the, the, the tensions that that creates and uh, the storylines. But then, you know, you look, by, a casual reader will just say, well, money, whatever. But you're systematically linking it and seeing, you know, there are, Dostoevsky's writing at a time, he's under money pressures all the time. Russia is, is changing at that period. And there's, there's a lot of uncertainty, and, and it's reflected in the works of, of Dostoevsky. And, of course, one of the great characters, uh, Prince Mishkin in, in, in The Idiot, it's, it's worth kind of highlighting, I think, for readers of that novel where you see the economic connections. I think that Dostoevsky plays a major role in my book because it's hard to think of another author who offers more fascinating and far-reaching reflections on the power of money in particular. Uh, and The Idiot is a great place to see that in action. I think anyone who's read the novel is likely to remember the really striking scene that culminates part one of the novel, where most of the novel's characters have gathered at Nastasia Filipovna's house uh, to celebrate her name day. And uh, as readers probably remember, Rogozhin, the passionate merchant, storms in with a bundle of money, a hundred thousand rubles in paper notes, and he offers it uh, to Nastasia Filipovna as a kind of offer of, of marriage. And she responds to this by throwing the money into the fireplace. And as it lingers there in the fire, uh, the other characters stare at it in fascination. And for me, this 
bundle of money that for some kind of remarkable reason doesn't burn in the fireplace it ends up getting pulled out of there and uh, gets passed around among several of the novel's major characters over the course of the next few hundred pages this bundle of money for me becomes uh, kind of a, a convenient focal point for talking about some of the different ways that Dostoevsky imagines money in that novel. And as you said at the beginning of this interview, when we're talking about Dostoevsky's representation of money, we're not dealing with somebody who has a sophisticated understanding of modern economics. And that's not what I'm interested in learning in Dostoevsky. Uh, what I think is fascinating is the way that he perceives or imagines certain uh, transformations happening in society and turns those into fiction, turns those into plots of novels. And so what we see in Dostoevsky more clearly, I think, than anywhere else is this distinction of different kinds of money that are linked to different kinds of money-making people and money-making activities. In Dostoevsky, you have these merchant characters. Rogozhin is the most uh, prominent example, but there are several others who are, of course, involved in money-making uh, activities, but their life is not defined by the kind of constant motion and constant activity that characterizes uh, individuals like Stolz in Oblomov or a number of these kind of minor figures in Dostoevsky's works. Instead of that, they uh, seem to exemplify some older way uh, in which money fit into Russian culture, a way that was not so disruptive, that didn't seem to destabilize the other social categories, the other systems of value that existed in Russian society. Merchants are separate from everyone else. They're immobile. Their money doesn't do very much in the novels. That is to say, of course, it's present in the scene in this extraordinarily dramatic, psychologically intense fashion. But in terms of putting, uh, in terms of holding uh, other characters uh, in its sort of intangible power, uh, it's very different from the money that these peripheral capitalist characters put into motion. Rogozhin's money uh, is striking in its psychological effects, but it's pretty limited in its narrative effects. And, and you know, it's yeah. the point that you make is that, you know, it, money, as in many other great novelists who aren't really focused on money, money just shows up sometimes. The merchant shows up or the ant dies. And you give one example, and I forget which novel it is. It may be from that where the, the money... Uh, somebody died, five people had to die in order for money to show up in the novel. And it's completely ridiculous, but it's typical of, it, it is not a description of a merchant's life, uh, productive life generating this cash, which then enters the novel. It's just happens, duus ex machina and, and shows up, but it has a real power on people. I forget which, which of the characters uh, ends up having to receive the money from an aunt who died and so forth. Uh, remind me. So this actually happens twice. Uh, it happens in The Idiot, Prince Mushkin, who, you know, we don't associate uh, Prince Mushkin with wealth, but Dostoevsky's novel requires him to have money so that he can also be uh, a kind of social equal with Rogozhin and these other characters competing for Nastasia Filipovna, and so the money has to come from somewhere. 
Where does it come from? From a merchant separated from Mishkin by something like five characters, who, as you point out, have to die in exactly the right sequence for him to inherit this money. And it happens again in the Brothers Karamazov. Similarly, this kind of uh, almost comedic sequence of people dying so that the money can, uh, from its sudden appearance uh, somewhere on the periphery of, a no- of the novel, can make its way into one of these key episodes. So let's let's shift to the Brothers Karamazov because if 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 you shift from I, I'll call it re- relative clarity, at least in your presentation of these issues in Tolstoy and Kancharov, the in in Dostoevsky it's messier, and uh, in the Brothers Karamazov it's really quite you know sort of confusing the role of economics. It's there, but uh, you know one when one thinks of the Brothers Karamazov, one doesn't think about the the role of money, and yet you know you've you've very thought provoking assertion that it's a, a driving force or a one of many in in uh, the motivations of the characters there. So I should say that the Brothers Karamazov is the very first novel that provoked these questions for me. Uh, the first time that I read it, or reread it, I should say, as I, as I was uh, reading it in grad school, the thing that insistently struck me is that almost every time, uh, well, I shouldn't say every time, but over and over again in this novel, the same exact sum appears, 3,000 rubles. Uh, 3,000 rubles is famously the amount that uh, the father, Fyodor Pavlovich Karamazov, and his son, Mitya, fight over because they both want to offer it to Grushinka, uh, the woman they're both in love with. But it's a figure that appears in other contexts as well, seemingly for no good reason. Uh, it's the cost of a lawyer's fee. It's the cost uh, offered for a plot of wood, uh, for, a, for a plot of trees, rather. Uh, it seems such, like such an arbitrary amount. Uh, why, why are so many disparate things worth exactly the same amount? Why are the figures used uh, in various plot situations in this novel, uh, even if they're not 3,000, such conveniently round figures that it seems like Dostoevsky is just picking a number that uh, suits his purposes, whereas in other cases, in this novel and in others, in the in, say, Crime and Punishment, for example, uh, we have such carefully enumerated, very specific sums. Raskolnikov, uh, again, the protagonist of Crime and Punishment, keeps counting the pocket change that he has, uh, kind of accounting for every kopeck. And here we have these sums that seem utterly arbitrary, but also kind of insistently recurring. And so this was my starting point for trying to figure out what was going on in the Brothers Karamazov. Uh, Beyond that, I started to notice these strange ways in which uh, the novel's metaphysical and religious searching seemed bizarrely infected by this language of money. the elder Zesima, who is the main source of these religious teachings in the novel, constantly refers to love being able to buy this or that. And he quite unambiguously uses the Russian verb kupits, uh, which means to buy. Uh, he uses other metaphors of uh, monetary transaction. Uh, some of these have roots in the Bible. Some of them have roots in Russian theological language, but 
not all of them do, and he uses them with such insistence that uh, these metaphors just seem to demand some kind of interpretation. And so this is a novel that on the surface doesn't seem to have much of anything to say about modern capitalism, but it's also a novel utterly pervaded by sums of money. I actually, this this is one of the kind of nerdier parts of my uh, project, but I counted how often uh, 3,000 rubles as a sum appears in this novel, and I can't tell you from memory exactly how many times, but it's something like 170 times. Just an extraordinary frequency with which this uh, sum is mentioned. And so, as I began to read uh, the novel with money in mind, I began to see that it is absolutely saturated with monetary language, with monetary figures, with these monetary metaphors. And then I began to realize that even if we in, uh, find ourselves in this novel in kind of a, a peripheral backwoods location, a small provincial town uh, where there aren't factories, there aren't businesses, uh, we are still uh, in a world in which everything seems to have a price. It's a really unique take, I would say, on all of the greats, but specifically on on, on Dostoevsky. Just a, a different perspective. I think it, as you move towards the end of the book and you, you come upon Chekhov, it becomes uh, easier to see these things. Chekhov is writing a couple decades later, and Russian capitalism, uh, for better or for worse, has, has moved forward or backward, depending on your view, I suppose, uh, if you're Levin. And the, the, it's clear in these short stories, uh, to me, it's clear in his stories, the role of economic relations uh, taking up an increasing percentage, I will call it, of, the, of mind space or shelf space uh, of, of the literature. You know, it, it is, become, you know, now that you can see the trajectory starting early in the 19th century, but by the end of the century, it's pretty apparent, at least it seems to me, in Chekhov's work that you know it's a society being tossed around by changing economic relations. I wanted to end with Chekhov for precisely that reason, because so much of what is latent uh, in the earlier work, so much of what these authors are trying to grapple with, but which is still kind of on the horizon, all of these changes for which there is kind of limited evidence on the ground, but there is a great deal of anticipatory anxiety around this limited evidence. All of this becomes much more concretely a part of daily life in the time in which Chekhov is writing, uh, in kind of the the very end, the later 1880s to the eight, uh, to about 1900. But at the same time, as Chekhov deals with these things much more directly, uh, inasmuch as his protagonists are often factory owners or business owners for whom this, uh, this stuff is a matter of daily life rather than these kind of nightmarish anticipations as they are for uh, characters in Tolstoy and Dostoevsky uh, often. What amazed me as, as I was studying Chekhov's works with these economic questions in mind is how I think pretty much without exception, his business owners and factory owners all inherit these businesses and factories from the earlier generation. They do so reluctantly, and they're all kind of scared of what they own. Uh, the factory owners don't understand their own factories. They're frightened to go into them. They are reluctant owners of them. They don't want to have anything to do with them, but they also can't get rid of them. Uh, 
similarly with business owners, I think my favorite example is in Chekhov's really kind of not often read late novella, uh, Three Years. It's a novella about a man who inherits a haberdashery uh, that comes with this big warehouse that he's afraid to visit. He never wants to go inside. Uh, he doesn't want to take part in the day-to-day operations of the business. And so it seems that no one is really in charge. But when he finally gets uh, down to looking at the uh, accounting for for the business, it turns out that instead of making uh, whatever amount of money he thought it was making, it's actually making much more. It's actually much more successful than he thought, despite not having any kind of clear oversight. And so what strikes me in Chekhov is that the business owners themselves find that these businesses are mysterious, frightening entities. There seems to be no, no kind of rational connection between human agency and what these factories and businesses do. They've taken on an almost kind of natural quality. So providing a completely new view of, of 19th century Russian literature, I want to, as we kind of wrap up, take take it to the present, believe it or not, because the 20th century from the Soviet period is a a period of kind of enforced economic literature. We get to read Cement and Kakzakalyala's Stahl and and other charming works of 20th century uh, Soviet uh, economic uh, literature, which interesting in its own way. Uh, But I, I wonder if you've given thought to, or if anyone has observed, that the economic disruption is also an element of contemporary Russian literature. And I, I'm surprising you with this question, so I don't, if you don't have to answer it, but, uh, you know, it, it, Russia today is still facing some of the same economic challenges. It's integration to the uh, global economic system, haves and haves nots, a rapidly changing economic environment between production and services issues of the environment that Levin would still appreciate, that uh, whether there's still the same underlying tension uh, in, in, in contemporary Russian literature, or is that the next book? I think that's a fascinating question, and there is more than enough to think about here for uh, the next book. Uh, I think that it is it is striking to think how when we think about Russia's economic history over the past 160 years or so, it always seems to be the case that Russia is undergoing some kind of uh, transformation, some kind of transition, some kind of trans- uh, collision with these uh, global economic forces. And once again, indeed, as you say, Russia seems to be in the process of what we often talk about as a transition to capitalism. Uh, once again, capitalism seems to be uh, kind of a, a, a relatively new presence in Russian economic life. Vadim, what are you working on now? And uh, what is, is there a follow-on project associated with this? I'm, I'm working on a number of different things right now and trying to figure out what to focus on in the next book. Uh, there are certain characters that emerge at the end of this narrative that I think uh, point the way potentially to other books. For example, uh, one of the characters who emerges at the end of this book, uh, who marks the transition from this phase when capitalism is scary and barely comprehensible to something that is uh, 
a presence in daily life, uh, a matter of uh, workers' political concern and things like this is Maxim Gorky, who of course mm. becomes an icon of socialist realism later on. But in this early stage, when uh, he fits into this late 19th century, early 20th century milieu, I think that he marks a very interesting transition uh, from these writers that I focus on in the book to this new generation of people who are much more personally acquainted with, in this case, industrial labor. And so look at it from the inside and offer a completely different perspective on it. To give you a, a very brief example of another character I'm working on right now, uh, who comes up in the book as well, uh, a minor writer by modern standards, but an extremely prolific one in the 19th century, Pyotr Babarykin. His work is almost completely forgotten because the Soviets are not particularly fond of him and don't support uh, the one of those uh, lavish collected works as they do with Tolstoy, uh, Chekhov and others. But he was a writer who was almost uniquely fascinated by capitalism. And he wrote about it in a completely different way from all of these other writers. He's one of the few for whom uh, what is happening is not just scary, but remarkable and fascinating in a way that seems to point the way to utterly unprecedented new possibilities. And so I think that he offers a path into 19th century Russian literature that would be profoundly different from the narratives that we're used to reading about. Well, I look forward to having you back on the show to discuss uh, Bobrovkin or or, uh, Gorky and, and this economic uh, take on on the classics of Russian literature. The book is Russia's Capitalist Realism, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and Chekhov by Vadim Schneider. Vadim, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much. I look forward to our next conversation.